morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you would please find the attendance pads and uh, fill those out, pass them along to others. Uh, you want to be sure to get credit for braving the cold weather this morning and being here in, in worship with us. I'm glad you have, have done that. And, and those who are uh, staying home and, and warm but worshiping with us online, we're glad that you have chosen to join us as well and pray that we will all be blessed in this time of worship. Thank you to Jean for uh, filling in for Carol this morning. Carol's not feeling well, but uh, Jean uh, was able to step in, and so uh, we missed having Carol here, but uh, we're so blessed to have Jean, and, and thank you, Jean, for, for blessing us with your gifts this morning. Uh, I would uh, invite us into an attitude of worship now as, uh, the music, as the choir presents the music of the introit. morning. Would you stand as you are able for our call to worship found in your bulletin? Come, people of God, to the one in whom we trust. Praise God who delivers and rescues us. Hope in God who has created you. Open yourself to the one who knows you well. God accepts us even when people do not. God affirms us even when we do. Our God gives us tasks to do and strength to do them. God's word of love is ours to proclaim. We have come to embrace the mysteries of our faith. We are here to worship God. And you'll remain standing for our opening hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, number 514.
You may be seated. And would you join with me in our opening prayer printed in your bulletin? Faithful God, you draw near to us in our joy and in our grief, in our hope and in our despair. When we are bowed down, you raise us anew. We turn to you now in search of your healing touch. God of compassion and love, move among us this hour. Open our eyes, dispel our fears, and show us the real life you have to offer. We pray this in the name of the risen one, Jesus the Christ. Amen. And our prayer hymn is, I want Jesus to walk with me, number 521. heard uh, now, but if not, I need to share with you that Bruce Pickleheimer did uh, pass away yesterday, and so we want to hold his family and loved ones in prayer this morning, and uh, we have a number of other church members and friends who are going through times of illness right now, and we need to be holding all of them in prayer as well. And so let, let us lift up these and others that we're aware of this morning in need of our prayers as we join in a time of silent prayer. Let us pray.
Lord, we know that through all of our trials, you indeed are there walking with us. When we are troubled, you are the one who brings us peace. When we're grieving, you are our consolation. When we are ill, both in body and in spirit, you are the one who brings healing and wholeness. When we're in despair, you are the one who brings hope. And so in all of these things, we turn to you now, kneeling before you, bowing before you, acknowledging your greatness and our great need for you. Lord, be with us in this time of worship. Be with us throughout our living days that each step we take, we might take in the confidence of your mercy, your love, the salvation we have in you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name as we offer you now ourselves and the words that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. During the music of the offertory, the ushers will wait upon us as we present ourselves to God through the giving of our tithes and our offerings.
Join me in the prayer of dedication. With awe and wonder before you, O God, we dare to enlist all our efforts toward the realization of your realm. Where there is injustice, we would champion those oppressed and misunderstood. When some feel rejected, we reach out to accept them in Christ's name. May these offerings preach and teach and heal. Amen. Please be seated. Our scripture lesson continues this morning with a story from Daniel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. 
our walk through the book of Daniel brings us this week to chapter 3. And I have to tell you that when I began this series, when I began preparing for it, I was planning on skipping this chapter, not because it, I don't like it or because it's not important, but simply because I already preached on this chapter just six months ago. You might remember it was one of the stories from Vacation Bible School this past summer, and I preached on it the Sunday uh, before VBS. If you don't remember that, well, then it's probably pretty good I'm preaching on it again. There are two reasons, though, that that I decided that I could not skip over this chapter as we go through the book of Daniel. The first reason came to me just after I preached on chapter 1, and I was preaching about knowing who you are and whose you are and staying faithful and true to that, even when the culture around us tells us that we need to do things their way or we're going to miss out and we're going to fall behind. I got a lot of good feedback on that sermon. Some people told me, though, that, that... they have at times faced some persecution for doing some of the things that that I was talking about in that sermon. And and that's when I decided that I could not skip over chapter 3 in our look at Daniel, because that's what this chapter is all about. The fact that there are sacrifices to be made, big sacrifices, and risks to be taken, huge risks, when we commit to staying true to our faith. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to be ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace, if that's what it comes to, before we turn our backs on what God has commanded of us. That's a key point of this chapter, and I will come back to that later in the sermon, but there's a second reason why I didn't want to skip over this chapter. When we looked at it last summer, we considered this as a standalone story, and it's a good standalone story. It deserves to be read and studied and preached on in its own right. But there are some things that come to light when you look at this chapter in the context of the rest of the book, and rather than just as an isolated story. Things such as this. We saw last week in chapter 2 that after Daniel was able to do what no one else in Babylon could do, the king proclaimed, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Then he promoted Daniel to his court, and and at Daniel's request, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to positions of authority over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But when we come to chapter 3, it it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar is completely ignorant of the Jewish beliefs and of the God of Israel. It appeared at the end of chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had come to know and accept the truth of God, but then in chapter 3, he is setting up this giant idol and commanding all of his kingdom to bow down and worship this idol, and and he's ready to kill anyone who doesn't. What's going on here? How could the king forget the lesson of chapter 2 so quickly and go back to his destructive idolatry so vehemently? And furthermore, the, the three friends of Daniel are singled out for destruction in the fire, but there's no mention of Daniel at all in the entire chapter. Why didn't Daniel step in to stop this? And if he tried to step in and stop it, and he was rebuked by the king, then why wasn't he bound for the fire as well? Well, first of all, we need to keep in mind that although Daniel goes right into this new story at the beginning of chapter 3, that doesn't mean that this story took place the next day, or the next week, or the next month, or, or even the next year. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon for 43 years. Daniel only talks about Nebuchadnezzar in the first four chapters of his book. 
As we've seen already, chapter 1 takes place the year before Nebuchadnezzar became king. Chapter 2 is set in the second year of his reign. That means that chapters 3 and 4 could take place any time over the next 41 years. There's an ancient Greek translation of Daniel that that claims that this story in chapter 3 happened in the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. That time frame doesn't appear in the inspired text, which is why it's not in our Bibles, so we can't depend upon it, but, but it would make a lot of sense. For one thing, it would mean that this story takes place 16 years after the events of chapter 2. There's a lot that can happen to change a person's mind in 16 years, isn't there? Think about the person that you were 16 years ago. Is your faith exactly the same now as it was then? I'm guessing not. In fact, even someone who was a devout Christian 16 years ago could claim to be an atheist today. And Nebuchadnezzar was far from a devout Christian at the end of chapter 2, even if he did get a momentary glimpse at the truth of God. There's something else, though, about the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. That was the year that he waged a violent attack on Jerusalem and completely destroyed the Jewish temple. Now, he had attacked Jerusalem several times before. We've seen that earlier in the book. Even before he became king, he he carried high-ranking people into captivity in Babylon along with articles from the temple. But in the 18th year of his reign, that is when he completely wiped out the temple, knocking it to the ground. If the events in Daniel chapter 3 happened in that same year, that would mean that King Nebuchadnezzar was setting up this idolatrous statue and instituting false worship in Babylon at the very same time that he was attempting to wipe out true worship of God in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had decided that the time had come to exert his dominance over all nations and all gods once and for all. As I said, I I don't know that this story happened that same year, but we do know that it had to have taken place several years after Daniel chapter 2. And we also know that Nebuchadnezzar's supposed conversion in chapter 2 was not a true conversion. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, the fact that he continued to attack the Holy Land time and time again, finally destroyed the temple, shows that he never came to true faith in the one true God. But even what Daniel tells us in his own book shows us that this was not true faith on Nebuchadnezzar's part. Consider what Nebuchadnezzar did first when Daniel revealed his dream and the interpretation of it. He worshipped Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar worshipped Daniel. Some translations use the word honored or paid homage, but the Bible literally says that he worshipped Daniel and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. Not to God, but to Daniel. All that Nebuchadnezzar had ever known was false worship, idolatry, paganism. That wasn't going to change in a moment. All he really understood was that Daniel could do what none of the gods of Babylon could, and so he worshipped Daniel. Now, Daniel must have told him that this was inappropriate. Daniel is consistent throughout in giving the credit and the glory to God rather than himself. But even when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this, even when he gives credit to God rather than Daniel, notice what he says 
Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. He doesn't call him the one and only God. He doesn't say your God is now my God. He still considers this God to be Daniel's God. He refers to him as your God. What you need to understand is that Nobody else in the entire world at that time, other than the Jews, had any concept of there being only one God. Monotheism was an entirely foreign concept, one that most people couldn't even wrap their minds around. Their idea of divinity was localized. There were gods of different objects and gods of different lands and different gods for different peoples. Nebuchadnezzar may have said to Daniel, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, but what he meant by that was simply that Daniel's God was more powerful than all the others. He didn't mean that the others didn't exist. He certainly didn't mean that Daniel's God was God for all places and all peoples. He still thought that this God was Daniel's God, one who went where Daniel went. When Nebuchadnezzar was responding to what he was responding to was the wonder of what Daniel had done not the truth of who God is. John Calvin wrote about the superficial nature of Nebuchadnezzar's supposed conversion at the end of chapter 3, but the same can be said of his supposed conversion at the end of chapter 2. Faith based on signs and miracles will not last if it does not build upon the knowledge of God's character from God's Word. Calvin writes, I allow indeed that miracles prepare people to believe, but if miracles only occurred without the knowledge of God being added from his word, faith will vanish away. Again, writing about Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 3, Calvin states, while his senses were fixed on the miracles, he was content with the spectacle without inquiring into the character of the God of Israel and the bearing of his law. If that's that's the case at the end of chapter 3, after witnessing the miracle of the fiery furnace, then how much more so is it true of Nebuchadnezzar's confession at the end of chapter 2? It basically meant nothing, and it could not last, because the king did not seek to know God, the God whom he was proclaiming. He didn't search God's word. He didn't concern himself with God's holy law. He simply acknowledged that there was some power in Daniel's God that was beyond anything he had previously experienced. Centuries later, Jesus would teach about the seed that falls on the shallow ground. It springs up quickly, but just as quickly it dies out because there's no depth to it. Such is the faith of Nebuchadnezzar who proclaims the greatness of Daniel's God, but then he doesn't commit himself to getting to know this God through his word. Let's put it in modern context. Consider a lifelong Bengals fan who prayed two weeks ago, God, if you are real, let the Bengals finally win a playoff game. And then last week, with with under a minute left in the game, they say, God, if you're up there, if you can hear me, prove yourself to me now. I have no doubt that when the Bengals won, they praised God for it, and I have no doubt that they really meant it. But how long-lasting will that faith be 
if that person doesn't now start attending worship on a regular basis and getting active in a community of faith and studying God's Word with a, with a wholehearted intent of getting to know this God who answered that prayer, how long will it be before they start questioning the truth of God once again? certainly won't take 16 years for that to happen. Will it even take 16 days? Especially if later today, well, I'm not even going to say it. Nebuchadnezzar did not get to know Daniel's God. He did not commit himself to Daniel's God. He, he had absolutely no concept of Daniel's God being the one and only true God of all the universe. All he knew him as was the God of Daniel. So we come to chapter 3, and Daniel doesn't appear to be anywhere around. He, he must have been away when this story took place. He doesn't tell us why or, or where he went, but the fact that he wasn't there is obvious. If he had been there, he would have refused to bow down, just like his three friends. He might even have tried to talk some sense into the king, but he wasn't there. And since he wasn't there, neither was his God. That's how Nebuchadnezzar would have thought at that time because of his pagan understanding and because he hadn't taken the time and made the effort to get to know the truth of God. He hadn't submitted himself to Daniel's God. The God of Daniel might be supreme over all the others, but if Daniel wasn't there, then neither was his God. What better time for King Nebuchadnezzar to exert his dominance than at a time when he believes that there is no other power, no other God even, that can challenge him. Consider what Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he was trying to pressure them into bowing down to that statue that he had made. If you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that shall deliver you from my hand? Why didn't Nebuchadnezzar know that the one true God of the universe could save them? Because he knew nothing about the one true God of the universe. The God of Israel had been destroyed along with the temple. The God of Daniel was away on an errand. It's like a bully saying to his seemingly helpless victim while, while the protector is away, who's going to save you now? Not realizing that the protector is standing right behind him all the time. But before we go into the fire, let's take a look at this statue. Having just read Daniel 2 last week, we remember that the king had a dream of a statue. That statue in his dream had a, a head made of pure gold. Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar that the gold head was himself, King Nebuchadnezzar. The rest of the dream... And what it meant was not at all flattering to the king. But the fact that he was the head made of gold, well, that surely was. That stuck with him. Over the years, the, the king remembered and reflected upon himself as that golden head of the statue. And he probably tried to push the rest of the dream aside. Perhaps even thinking that he could supplant the prophecy foretold by Daniel. He could use his power and his might to, to change the outcome. Now, all these years later, while Daniel is away, 
It's time to make that dream real. And so he builds this monstrous statue, the entire thing made of gold. Not just the head, but the whole statue is gold. The meaning is clear. He is not just the head. He is the entirety. His kingdom will not come crumbling down. It will reign forever. This statue is meant to supersede and transcend his earlier dream. And in order to accomplish that, he needs everyone around to acknowledge it, to acknowledge his supremacy and his power by bowing down to his golden image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not do that. They could not do that because they knew the truth. They could not go along with what the king commanded because they had committed themselves to a higher authority. They didn't just think of the God of Israel as some distant and unknown deity. They knew him personally. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. They knew his law. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. What the king was demanding of them, they simply could not do. But there was danger in not doing it. Serious danger. Their lives were at stake. The king decreed that anyone not bowing down to worship his golden statue would be thrown into a furnace of fire. And there wasn't anyone else around that was going to stand up for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everyone else decided to go along with the king. And most of them probably thought that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were foolish for not going along as well. After all, the king had not decreed that they had to actually mean it. The king had no control over what was going on in their heads or in their hearts. They, they could very easily have bowed down to that golden statue, just like everybody else around them, all the while praying silently to God, Lord, you know we don't mean anything by this action. We don't actually believe in this idol. You, you know and we know that you are the one true God. You know and we know that this statue is nothing. They could have done that. And by praying that to themselves while bowing down to the statue, they could have protected their lives and not caused a stir. That they refused to do that. That, 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 that they refused to go along with even the outward appearance of idolatry. Well, that proved them to be radicals. And the people around them, even the ones who knew how ridiculous it is to bow down and worship a golden statue, probably figured they were getting what they deserved for being so unreasonable. If you have never read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, you should rectify that as soon as possible. It's a long letter. It'll take you a while to get through it. But what an example of genuine Daniel-like faith in the face of persecution. It's a letter written by Dr. King while he was locked up in jail in Birmingham, Alabama. The letter is addressed primarily to white Christians who were supportive of what he was trying to achieve, but who were critical of him for how he was going about it. 
They claimed that he was expecting too much too soon. He needed to stop being so radical. He needed to stop instigating trouble. He needed to be patient. He needed to be reasonable. Many people today forget or they gloss over the fact that that is exactly what the majority of white Christians thought of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his own day. They may have generally agreed with what he was trying to accomplish, but they thought he was too radical, that he needed to back off, stop making trouble, or else trouble was going to come to him and it would be his own fault for starting it. Just as so many of those who bowed down to the golden statue all those years ago may have agreed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's cause, but they thought that if they don't go about it in a more sensible and less radical way, then it's their own fault for getting burned to a crisp. That is what our society in general thinks of those who stand up for the truth of God in the face of worldly opposition. You should just go along and make nice. Believe whatever you want, but don't bother the rest of us with it. And certainly don't criticize the rest of us for not standing up with you. We're just doing what reasonable people do. Think whatever you want to about God personally, but don't bring that into public life. That's something that I've noticed about today's society that puts us right back into the same context as the society of Daniel chapter 3, there's this prevailing idea right now that, that we all have our own gods, that there is no one true objective God who rules over all. You have your God, I have mine. I can't tell you how many times I've had people who don't share my faith refer to God as your God. He's not my God. He's God. He just is. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you submit to him or not, God is God. But our society today doesn't believe that any more than they did in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything is subjective. Gods are all local and personal. There's no objective ruler over all. And if that's the case, then it does look ridiculous to stand up for something that puts you at odds with everyone else then it does appear outrageous to refuse to bow down to a statue when that can get you thrown into a fiery furnace. Then it does seem unreasonably radical for a black person to sit down at a lunch counter where the sign clearly says, whites only, when to do so could start a riot, get them beaten up, thrown into prison. Notice, though, that radical as they were, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never rebelled against the king. They continued to serve the king faithfully in everything, every command he made that was not contrary to God. When the king decreed that they be bound up and thrown in the fire, they didn't even argue with his authority to do that. In fact, in fact, they did not come back out of the fiery furnace until the king commanded them to do so. They just walked around in there, unbound and unharmed by the flames, until the king ordered them to come back out. Which the king did after seeing that not only were they unbound and unharmed, there was also another person in there with them, a person who looked 
to Nebuchadnezzar like a son of the gods or an angel. Interpreters have long debated the identity of this fourth person in the furnace. Several times later in the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about the archangel Michael as the protector of humankind. It would be reasonable and keeping within the rest of Daniel to see this figure in the fire as Michael. Others point out that that there are many prophecies of the Christ in Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar himself says that this one looked like a son of the gods. Most interpreters agree that that this was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ walking with the three men through the flames. I'm intrigued by the several mentions of binding in the passage. Verse 20, the king orders that the men be bound and thrown into the fire. Verse 21, so the men were bound. Verse 23, the three men fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 24, the king asked, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? Four times Daniel emphasizes that these men were bound. And then verse 25, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire. There is only one who breaks all of the chains that bind us. Jesus the Christ. Jesus Christ unbinds us from everything that would seek to hold us back, hold us down, keep us in place, keep us in line. All of the powers that that would seek to oppress us, all of the forces that try to turn us away from God, Jesus Christ breaks all of those bonds and sets us free. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were set free by Christ. Even before he had come to earth in the person of Jesus, the eternal Christ broke the bonds that held them captive and protected them from the flames of that furnace. And yet, those three men did not walk out of the furnace. It reminds me of Paul and Silas when they were in prison and an earthquake shattered the chains that bound them and broke the bars that imprisoned them, and yet they stayed in that cell. Even though there was no power to hold them there, even though Christ had set them free, still they remained. They stayed there as a witness to their faith and the truth of the gospel. So too, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stayed in that fiery furnace as a witness to their faith and to the power and truth of Almighty God until the king was changed, until he released them. He told them to come out. That's one of the principles of nonviolent resistance. It's one of the principles of genuine Christian faith, a willingness to respect the authority of those in a position of power, and a readiness to suffer the consequences of refusing to conform to ungodly rules, even to the point of imprisonment, even to the point of death. Dr. Martin Luther King went to jail 29 times during his short life. 29 times he was locked up by those who had the power of the law behind them. But he had the power of God behind him. Not once did he resist the authority of those who put him in prison, their authority to put him there. 
He simply resisted their authority to make him do things that were contrary to God in order to avoid going to jail. He was prepared to face the consequences. And it wasn't just jail time that he faced. It was countless beatings, brutal attacks, death threats on himself and his family, bombings of his home, and ultimately the cost of his own life. If you think that you can't bear to stand up for the truth of the gospel because someone might think badly of you or say an unkind word about you, get a grip. Read your Bible. Pay attention to history. Pray to God. Being faithful means standing out. It means going against the grain of society. Sometimes it requires sacrifice. Real sacrifice. Costly sacrifice. Sometimes it even means being thrown into the fire. If you're not ready to face that, then you're not ready to call yourself a person of faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were people of faith. They knew that God was powerful to save them. And even if God chose not to rescue them from the fire, they were not about to bow down to any other power on earth or in heaven. The Lord alone is God. He will prevail. Let us now sing of God's prevailing power as we stand up and turn to hymn number 519, lift every voice and sing.
Please be seated. And as you go from this place, may you remember that the God of all the universe goes with you. He is our strength and our shield. He will bring us through all trials. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.